The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Will Appleton with an episode of Chatter for December 25th, 2022. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Chatter, a podcast hosted by David Priest and Shane Harris that features in-depth discussions with fascinating people at the creative edges of national security. Today's episode of Chatter is entitled Presidents Who Lose and Run Again with Troy Senek. In the episode, Priest sat down with Senek to chat about Grover Cleveland, the only president to lose a re-election bid, run again, and secure a second term. They also discussed other cases of presidents who lost re-election bids and then ran again, how Cleveland's efforts to regain the presidency compare to former President Trump's current attempt, how we rate U.S. leaders, and more. This is Chatter. Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week author Troy Senek on presidents who lose and run again. There's this weird thing where if something hasn't happened recently, we tend to think it's impossible. So up until a few years ago, the idea of an ex-president coming back to run again on a third party ticket would seem strange. It seems like if you've been the president of the United States, you are clearly too good for that. Cleveland ends up as president, of course. My summary of his first term as president is uh, three words, veto, veto, veto. He vetoes 414 pieces of legislation, which is more than all 21 presidents prior to him combined. Grover Cleveland is actually the guy who stays back in the office burning the midnight oil. And this is sort of a through line in his legal career, in his political career. One of the defining characteristics of him Troy Senek, welcome to Chatter. David, delighted to be with you. It is going to be fun to nerd out with you about presidents because you you have a story that most of us, even people like me who are obsessed with the presidency, uh, don't have. It goes back to when you were 16 years old and you were taking a trip, I think, to the Northeast United States for the first time. Um, And like most 16-year-old boys, well, I'll let you tell it. Like most 16-year-old boys, what did you tell your mother you had to do while you were in new territory? Okay, David, I have to to start this (laughs) with the proviso that there is no telling of this story in which I don't seem clinically insane. So let's just get that out of the way early. Fair enough. Because at the age of 16, you're quite right. This is the first time I had ever gone to the Northeast because I'm from Southern California originally. I was a history nerd and a presidential history nerd from the time that I was a kid. And the first time that we went to that part of the country, I said to my mother, you know, we've really got to stop in Caldwell, New Jersey, 
at the Grover Cleveland birthplace, as a 16-year-old does. <laughs> so what this was is, her reaction? <laughs> fine. I mean, we sort of went to um, we went to historical sites when we traveled, so it wasn't that far afield. But this specific one, you could tell um, she had probably, you know, being a good mother, did not telegraph with her facial expressions what was actually happening <laughs> inside her head. Well, there is a a standard distribution bell curve of <laughs> historical places to visit, right? And at one end, one tail is, you know, you you, you got to try to see the Grand Canyon or you got to try to see the Statue right. of Liberty, right? The other end, I got to say, is Caldwell, New Jersey to see the birthplace of Grover Cleveland. <laughs> yeah, so I had had this, this fascination with um, Grover Cleveland in particular amongst presidents that, that went back to my childhood. And I, I think... The reason for that, because uh, like so many other people, I think, you know, biography in, in many cases informs uh, ideology or the, or the way you see the world. I, I grew up, as I said, in, in Southern California, but not whatever the mental picture you have is when I say the word Southern California, it's not that. The part of Southern California that I grew up in looked like Arizona and felt like Oklahoma culturally. It was, we were, we were quite rural. I mean, I lived off of a dirt road in an unincorporated town, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason I think I had this interest in Grover Cleveland from a young age was because I sort of backed into an interest in politics through this interest in history. And I was very intrigued by sort of outsider figures because mm -hmm. for somebody like me growing up in an area where the kinds of people that you saw in politics were foreign. The way that they spoke was foreign. There's this yeah. very specific sort of political argot that kind of has to be learned and doesn't really match with the way that sort of normal people talk. Right. So I remember as a kid growing up you know, in the early 90s, like being really compelled by Ross Perot, for instance, not, not because of anything that he actually stood for. I was too young to actually understand that, but just the idea of somebody coming in out of nowhere. He was and, different, uh, right? He shocked yeah. the system. Yeah. And suddenly being a, a major contender in American politics. And there's a lot of that, as I'm sure we'll get into with Grover Cleveland, the guy who yeah, kind sure. of emerges from nowhere in a moment where he's a, he's a kind of diuretic, you know, in, in American yeah. politics. And that was always the thing I found so interesting about him. That is, that is fascinating, right? Because across the presidency, we have, we have some cases of the true Po not politicians necessarily, but the people in government that kind of seem destined to at least run for the presidency, if not make it. So, yeah. you know, you've got a Madison and a Monroe, you've got a George H.W. Bush, you've got Nixon, you've got pe people who have been in and around government for a while. And some of those people end up becoming icons, uh, Jefferson and, and Madison. Um, and some of those people are like, eh, you know, maybe not so much. The outsiders are really varied. Some of them become iconic and some of them really fall by the wayside historically. So the fact that they attracted you is is interesting. Do you, do you know what got you started in presidential history in the first place when you were even younger? You know, it's funny about it. My father was a teacher and, in Orange County and his standard rule was when I was a child, you can have any book you want, but you can't have another one until you finish this one. And I remember being in a bookstore with my dad when I was a kid, and there was this volume, I think the Smithsonian put together, because it had all the all the presidents and then all the portraits that are in the National Portrait Gallery. Ah. And I, I think what initially spurred me was purely aesthetic, because it seemed, it seemed weird. There were these weird sort of antique figures that I had no 
Mm -hmm. uh, nothing that correlated with the life that I lived. So I, I, as I mentioned, actually in the acknowledgements in my book, I think I was just compelled by how weird Chester Arthur's sideburns were <laughs> to pick this book up. And, and it ended up, uh, my father had to rebind that book three times because I just got so deep into yeah. presidential history. And I, I can't tell you why it wasn't, a, it wasn't a kind of power worship. It wasn't me thinking I'm going to be president of the United States someday at all. Mm -hmm. It was just, I think I was compelled because as a kid, you know, there's half a dozen of them maybe that you know. Like you mm -hmm. learn Washington pretty early and Lincoln and some of the founders and, and the ones that are contemporary with you. And e even as a young kid, again, clearly foreshadowing where I went writing a, a book about Grover Cleveland, I thought it's remarkable mm -hmm. that here I've got a collection of dozens of men who in their day were, you know, if not the supreme figure in American life, certainly close to it, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly centerpieces of American culture. And most people today couldn't tell you their names. That's and right. that that was kind of what I found compelling about it is it, it does, when you look at presidential history, it is sort of brutally reductionist, right? You get a sense of what's ephemeral and what mm -hmm. isn't, what matters and what doesn't. And that's a thing that we lose in contemporary politics, you know, if you look at the breathless way that presidencies are covered, yeah. it, it is the opposite of how they will be judged in the future, right? It is the, the famous line that most presidents only get one sentence. And if you look at politics through that historical lens, you tend to look at presidencies very differently than if you're just following sort of the, the tick-tock of, of day in and day out reporting. Even more remarkable then that that you did focus in on Grover Cleveland by the time you were a teenager, because in, in recent years, uh, Ken Burns wrote a book, which I've seen in the kids' book section at Barnes & Noble, called Grover Cleveland Again. And yeah. as I recall, the, the image is a little furry in my mind, but it has, I like his mustache, but it has Grover Cleveland in the middle shaking the hand of either Barack Obama or Abraham Lincoln with other presidents around him. Yeah, that's right. And it's the kind of thing that I could see a kid looking at and saying, Grover Cleveland again, what's that about? And and getting that book. That didn't yeah. exist when either one of us were young. So right. we had to get there just through, I guess, these, these presidential compendiums that are out there. Yeah. So I wanted to to talk with you in some detail about an issue that has has come up again in in recent weeks, because we have a former president who left office and has decided to run again. And we tend to look at everything with a very strong currency bias. And so there's a huge yeah. focus on the details of this election and the details of these candidates and the details of politics today. But people forget we have, what, 200 plus years of history to look back on and realize we have had presidents who have tried to do this or have come close to trying to do this before. So I thought we'd kind of paint the picture of those and then focus in on the only one who has actually done so successfully to, to get voted out of office and then come back. So, so let's start early on, you know, obviously George Washington and um, most of those who followed him in that early part of American history um, did follow the two term limit themselves. That is, they didn't try to run for a third term and then lose to even have the opportunity to be right. the first president to lose election and come back. Uh, John Adams is different, though. Uh, John Adams did run for re-election. He did lose. And, and yet he did not try to run again, at least not that I can remember. No. You know what I always find interesting about the history of the American presidency 
because you're quite right. You know, there's always a there's always a recency bias. I always think of how relieved the Adams family must have been hmm. when Martin Van Buren lost re-election in 1840. And the reason I say this was because up until that point, best we could tell, the only way to lose re-election as an American president was to be a member of the Adams family. <laughs> That's right. right. John, John Adams loses his re-election. John Quincy does too. And it's until Van Buren, that's the first time that you get somebody who is not a member of that family who loses right. re-election. Now, John Quincy Adams, you know, lost, he he, he beat Jackson, um, somewhat surprisingly, uh, 1824, but then, then won the presidency, then lost. But he did not choose to run again either. Um, he, he ended up in the United States House of Representatives, which seems crazy yeah. to the modern mind. Yes, but it really does, doesn't it? He, in many ways, had a better career as a representative than than as a president. But then there is Martin Van Buren, right? Who you you nominate Chester Arthur is the picture that probably stood out to you from that early compendium of presidents. But you got to put Van Buren up there with his crazy hair. He looks kind of like great he looks like Doc hair, yeah. from Back to the Future, right? <laughs> so Martin Van Buren, um, you know, takes over after Jackson, runs runs the country for four years, and then is is drummed out. Um, he does kind of stay in the political realm. He's not done with politics yet, but but he doesn't get back to the presidency, does he? No, with both Van Buren and then, um, you may have to help me here because I'm not necessarily thinking of it linearly, but I think yeah. Fillmore is the next one after Van Buren who yep. goes down Fillmore the same road. Yeah, and in, and in both cases, you see them coming back through um, through third party runs, right? Which is, which is interesting, you know, which is not... I mean, that's a lot of the a lot of the history, right? It's the Teddy Roosevelt history too. Um, and again, you know, you just mentioned how strange it seems to have John Quincy Adams in the House after his presidency. I think Andrew Johnson went back to the Senate after his presidency too. Yeah, there's this weird thing where if something hasn't happened recently, we tend to think it's impossible. So up yeah. until a few years ago, the idea of an ex president like a Van Buren or a Fillmore coming back to run again at, on a third party ticket would yeah. seem strange. It seems, it seems a demeaning in a way, right? It seems mm -hmm. like if you've been the president of the United States, you are clearly too good for that. Right. And while best I can tell, he hasn't said anything specifically about it. There is a lot of that speculation around Donald Trump at this point. Sure. If Trump were to be denied mm. the Republican nomination, he could run on, on an independent or third party ticket. And of course we, that is one area where I think the history you should never mm -hmm. say never, especially after the last decade or so, but where I think the history is pretty controlling, that we know that just by dent of the way that the Electoral College is structured, that when you get mm -hmm. a serious third party candidate for president, it usually has the net effect of mm -hmm. knocking out the person who they are ideologically closest to, right? Like this is, is this is the 1912 story with Roosevelt and Taft canceling each other out and you get Woodrow Wilson as president. Right on. It is such a, a interesting dynamic, right? You have so many one-term presidents or partial-term presidents. Um, you could say it's Van Buren, it's it's Tyler, it's Fillmore. Later on, it's others who, I don't know if it's ego or what, but even their own party in some cases rejects them. Um, either like Tyler kicks them out of the party entirely or refuses to renominate them. And yet they still think, damn it, I'm still going to win. Like without the party that brought me, I'm still going to find a constituency that is going to yeah. elevate me. And 
I guess Teddy was the closest. I mean, he did pretty well on that ticket, but he had no chance of of actually winning. All the others, I mean, we're talking rounding errors in some of those elections. At least Millard Fillmore, when he when he ran with the the no nothings, I think it was in uh, eighteen fifty six. I think he did get something around twenty percent of the vote, which isn't bad for somebody that we can't even remember these days. But still, right. that's not close to a victory. And I wonder how much of it is just wrapped up in either the type of people who ran for president then had the ego that they thought they could always win, or whether it's something about the presidency itself that that shaped them to think, okay, I've had the office, I deserve to still have it. And I'm not sure how we disaggregate that. Yeah, I don't know either. But you know, I'll be curious to know whether you agree with this or, or whether you don't. But you know, we've both been proximate to to presidents, mm-hmm. and obviously small sample size, right? There's not a, not a huge sample size in general. But right. I have always told people, and I don't mean this as a slight to the sorts of people who hold the presidency, mm. because I think it's understandable. But um, the presidency is one of the most potent drugs that is out there. I mean, the the universe that you become a part of yeah. when you're president, I, yeah, I think it's very hard, even sort of the pre-modern presidency, to imagine if you've once held that power that you wouldn't be at least competitive to get it back. And, and I think the proof of this is... Mm. Look at the number, especially now in the last couple of decades, where the presidential primaries have expanded out so greatly. There's 16, 20 candidates running at any given time. And, you know, there are people in those kinds of races who are running to be spoilers and, and, and running to make a specific point on a specific issue sometimes. Right. But there's also an awful lot of people who are going to end up being rounding errors in the Iowa caucuses mm-hmm. who really believe it who really think that a moment is going to come where something is going to break and the public is going to understand what they missed all along about how wonderful these people are and how uniquely qualified they are to be (laughs) president of the United States. Well, if you can get into that kind of mindset, being, I don't know, a fairly obscure representative from Colorado, you (laughs) could certainly get into that mindset as a, as a former president of the United States. You know, I can sort of see it. The other thing that's interesting I mentioned this in a, in a footnote in my book, because you mentioned mm-hmm. figures like um, John Tyler, for instance, mm-hmm. is you have to get, when you talk about sort of partial term presidents, you actually have to get into the 20th century before any of these accidental presidents, mm-hmm. vice presidents who assume the presidency on the president's death, mm-hmm. um, get elected to a full term of their own. It actually doesn't happen until Teddy Roosevelt. All of the 19th century instances of that. These guys serve out the rest of the term, but they never end up getting uh, a term of their own. And that, and that changes in the, in the 20th century where more often than not, Mm -hmm. they are successful. That is an interesting change. And, and I won't say the change is due to Grover Cleveland, but we are going to talk about him in depth, but we'll skip over him now because there are some other presidents who lost, uh, who, who were president, tried to run again, lost. Um, in the modern era, we even have some, not as many, but you have a Gerald Ford, one of the accidental presidents, if you will, who did run again. He came really, really close to both winning a, a full term in 76, but also came pretty close to you know, looking for a renomination in, in 1980. Now, he didn't, he didn't go fully. He, he didn't formally get to that point where he was at the convention and Ford was going to be the nominee, but he was thinking about it at least. Whereas with George H.W. Bush, after he left in 1993, 
there's no indication he seriously, you know, thought about running again. He certainly didn't put himself forward in, in 96. Um, but you did have that guy in the middle. You did have that. Well, most of us wouldn't know the full story, but apparently 16 year old Troy Senek knew the story. There's that guy <laughs> Grover Cleveland. Um, so let's dig down on Grover Cleveland a little bit, because yeah. I think there's, first of all, a lot of interesting things about him. Uh, he is such an interesting exception to some of the rules you have just stated about the American presidency. Yeah. Um, but also he sets up such an interesting contrast and comparison with Donald Trump as someone who uh, did get elected to a full term of his own. That is not an accidental president, but somebody who did get elected to a full term of his own uh, was voted out and then is seeking to get back in that it sets up an interesting comparison to highlight perhaps, you know, some things about Trump that we didn't quite notice except for the contrast, but also some interesting similarities. So who was Grover Cleveland before he became a politician, which that is to say was the vast majority of his life before he became president? What was the fundamental character of Cleveland as he grew up and entered a career? I mean, the answer to the question of who he was before he got into politics is, uh, not much in ter in terms of in terms of public understanding of him. He's an extremely mm -hmm. uh, anonymous figure. I mean, he. I always tell people that the place to locate Grover Cleveland that's the most interesting is in the year eighteen eighty one, which is the year that he turns forty four, and he is a relatively obscure lawyer in private practice in Buffalo at that point. He had had one elected office about a decade prior. He had been the the sheriff of Erie County where Buffalo is located, but had been out of office for the better part of a decade. And in the course of three years, becomes mayor of Buffalo, governor of New York, president of the United States. It's really remarkable. Cleveland yeah. says when he was being sworn in in 1885 as president, that he can't get out of his head the thought that James Garfield, who would have been being sworn in four years earlier, would have had no earthly idea who Grover Cleveland was when he was taking the oath of office. And that, that's interesting, Troy, because Buffalo, um, now Buffalo is not you know a top 50 city in the United States, but at the time, it was certainly a top 20 city. It was a, an important city. The Erie Canal had a role. Um, yeah. Upstate New York meant more relative to the rest of the United States than it does now. That said, in a lawyer, even an exceptional lawyer in Buffalo, would not receive national attention. Right. I mean, had a hard time actually attracting even state attention. There's an account which I um, I present in my book when Cleveland was mayor of Buffalo and their discussions about who's going to run for governor of New York on the Democratic ticket in 1882, and uh, a pretty senior figure in the Democratic Party says, well, I think this guy Cleveland in Buffalo uh, would have a chance. And another fairly senior figure in the party says, who the hell's Cleveland? <laughs> right? I mean, Buffalo is more important then than it is now, uh, as you say, because there's a, there's a dynamism to Buffalo. This is really the era of Buffalo's great growth with the construction of the Erie Canal and it becoming a sort of major byway for shipping traffic, things like that. But the dynamic in New York State is not fundamentally different uh, than as it is now, which is to say downstate New York City really dominates everything. And Buffalo, you know, people forget sometimes, especially if you don't live in the in the Northeast, you assume all these states are pretty small, which for the most part they are. New York State is not. And there is an enormous distance 
between New York City and Buffalo, which is in the far western part of New York. And particularly given the transportation and technology constraints of the day, even if you're a prominent figure in Buffalo, uh, it takes a lot you know, to, to attract notice in, in New York City. I should just, to, to give some background on this, because I didn't fully answer the first question you asked about who he is, and it's probably important to understand because it explains a little bit of the anonymity. So Cleveland... Cleveland is born in 1837 in Caldwell, New Jersey, as we've mentioned. His father was a Presbyterian minister, and his father had a somewhat peripatetic career during Cleveland's childhood. It's a big family. There are nine kids. Grover's the middle. He's number five. They only stay in New Jersey until he's three, and then they move around uh, various cities in upstate New York, Fayetteville, Clinton, Holland, Patton. Those are the towns that he lives in growing up. And one of the, maybe the formative event of his childhood is that his father dies rather suddenly when he's only 16 years old. And one of the reasons that this is so formative is, for one, it it bars Cleveland's ability to attend college. He never goes to college. And uh, he, as one of the older boys, he and his, his brother, end up really becoming responsible for the financial livelihood of the family, of his widowed mother, of his younger sisters. And it's quite remarkable, actually, as the years pass on, Cleveland never goes to college, but he does pay for college educations for his sisters, for instance. Hmm. And um, after a, a few, I mean, he moves down to New York City briefly and teaches uh, in a school with his, alongside his brother to bring in some family bring in some money rather for the family. But he then sets off to Buffalo as a young man because there is the sense that he needs to he needs to go west. He's not credentialed. He doesn't really have certainly doesn't have family money. The name doesn't mean all that much. And his original idea is actually to go to the city of Cleveland, at least partially because it's it's named for a distant relative of his. <laughs> and he ends up in these are kind of calculations like an 18-year-old makes, right? He ends up uh, in Buffalo, which is originally supposed to be a, a pit stop on that journey because he has some family there, including uh, an uncle who's fairly wealthy and fairly connected in town. And it's his uncle who gets him into a prominent law firm in Buffalo. And that sort of starts his legal career. And uh, the reason that he's, as I say, it was a prominent law firm, but the reason that he's still a relatively anonymous lawyer prior to the the genesis of the political career mm-hmm. He's not Perry Mason. This is not a guy who is known for theatricality and courtroom oratory. He is, throughout his legal practice, usually paired with someone who is like that and someone who is usually politically connected. But Grover Cleveland is actually the guy who stays back in the office, burning the midnight oil and pouring through all the case law. And this is sort of a through line in his legal career, in his political career, one of the defining characteristics of him, which I think is very is steeped in the sort of deep sort of religiosity. I mean, his family, even though he was born in New Jersey, these are very much sort of New England Puritans when you draw the line back. Generations and generations of New England ministers. Mm-hmm. There is this extremely aggressive, really sort of self-flagellating work ethic that's always in play with Grover Cleveland. This is a guy who's going into the office at 8 o'clock in the morning and mm-hmm. leaving at 3 o'clock in the morning. So... He is known sort of in the legal establishment in Buffalo and and respected, but again, not the guy that anybody's going to point to and say, well, that guy's going to be mayor someday. That guy's going to be governor. People just wouldn't have seen it. It seems to me that maybe it doesn't matter what direction this comes from, but that that work ethic, that the guy who gets things done and isn't looking for the spotlight 
Um, that could be, it could be just because of the upbringing he had that he was forced into that situation to provide for his family at a certain level. Um, or it could be that religious ethic, right? The background that was in there from his father, even though his, his father died when, when he was young. But either way, it got Cleveland to a place where he could even become a lawyer because things were different back then. He didn't have to attend college and then attend law school. Right. You could become a lawyer by working with lawyers and essentially, you know, reading for the bar exam right. by doing the work of a lawyer, right? Yeah, back back in this day, there were a few law schools by this point, but yeah, for the most part, it's sort of a guild system. You read law, you went into a prominent law office, and you you studied there, and that's how you worked your way up. It's it's worth noting, by the way, that even within his own legal practice, Cleveland was not seen as this huge rising star. There's this famous story about his childhood, which I I uh, recount in in my book that he. Uh, early on in his tenure at this law firm in Buffalo, sitting there studying Blackstone's commentaries and looks up around lunch hour and realizes that all the lawyers have gone and locked him in the office. They didn't even realize he was there. And Cleveland famously, I don't know if this is, this may be too a little too pat a story, but it's been passed down for generations that Cleveland says, well, someday I will be better remembered. But there is a very clear pattern in, in all of the recollections about his childhood and his youth that Everybody thinks highly of this guy, mm-hmm. but they don't think about him that often. You know, he's just, he is a figure that is a little bit in the background. It's pretty clear to me from a scan of his entire life that he, he's something of an introvert. You know, he is certainly not a particularly florid, he has a distinctive personality, but not a particularly florid one. And uh, it all makes it all the more remarkable that. You know, this is a, another presidential subcategory we could talk about because it's one that I've always found interesting is introverted presidents because mm-hmm. it's, it seems so counterintuitive. And I think we're getting fewer and fewer of them as, as right. time goes by. I think it's harder to be an introverted president in uh, in the era of mass media being so central to the presidency. But we still have some. I mean, there are a lot of accounts that suggest that Barack Obama was, right. was somewhat introverted. I think people forget that you can be an introvert and be good on camera, right? Those things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, but um, it it is distinctive and unusual about him. He reminds me a little bit of Calvin Coolidge in this sense, that there is a very kind of right buttoned up sort of man of few words, kind of New England Puritan thing going on. Right on. Well, one of the the things during this time in Buffalo that that hit Cleveland was a choice that a whole bunch of men in the United States had to make, um, which is during the Civil War. Do you, yeah. do you go to war or do you take well, one of the options not to? And it ends up becoming a choice that matters to a whole lot of people who are running for higher office for, what, three or four decades hence. Um, Cleveland, of course, isn't thinking about running for high office, but he does have to make that choice. What does he do during the Civil War? He pays for a substitute, which is a perfectly legal practice at the time, but as you suggest, one that is fraught for somebody who's going to have a political career down the line. I mean, Cleveland is one of the only presidents, and I think the first one uh, after the Civil War to not have been a a veteran. Um, There's some important context for this, and I say none of this to excuse it, but I do think that this story gets told sometimes without the relevant context, which is that Cleveland, I've seen no record to suggest that Cleveland was sort of deeply conflicted about this. Um, although, I, you know, what's absence and what's evidence there is, is up for upper debate. But uh, 
two of his brothers had served in the Union Army. And as I said earlier, the family is still in a situation at this point in 1863 where uh, money, particularly Grover Cleveland's money, is going back to support his mother, is going back to support his younger siblings. His uh, The oldest brother in the family was in the ministry, so wasn't bringing in a lot of money. So Cleveland makes this calculation, at least in part, because he's not entirely sure where the family's welfare is going to be provided for from uh, if, if he is drafted. And what's interesting about this is a couple of decades later, when he's running for president, this does come up as an issue. And I've had a lot of people ask me why... Why wasn't it dispositive? Why didn't it hurt him more? How does he end up being a presidential nominee and then winning the presidential election if he's a guy who arguably dodged a draft, which is the wrong way to put it, but it's the analogy that people have in their heads, something like Bill Clinton. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, One is Republicans could only make so much hay out of this because one of the reasons that Cleveland is the, remember, he's the first Democrat to win the presidency since James Buchanan in 1856. The Republican Party has had a period of regnancy post-Civil War. And the Democrats won't win again after Cleveland until Wilson in 1912. One of the things that really helps on this front is he is a, he is a Northern Democrat. He is from New York. So I think the fact that you cannot tell this story without telling uh, the fact that Cleveland was going to be drafted by the Union side, right? And that his brothers, two of his brothers, fought in the Union Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that actually limits its its potency to some degree. And there were also a- attempts to turn this into an attack with the claims that the replacement that Cleveland hired, who was a Polish immigrant by the name of George Beninsky, uh, had been terribly injured in the course of the conflict. And it turns out that this was just a story made up to make political hay out of. He had, I think he had suffered a minor back injury and ended up working, you know, indoors for most of the war. Uh, He wasn't thrust into the teeth of of conflict. But it is an issue that Cleveland has to deal with uh, when he runs for president. But it turns out not to be a fatal one. So Cleveland wasn't really seeking office the way that that many other people did. He, he wasn't having a lifelong ambition of a senior political post, um, but he is sheriff in Buffalo for what, about two years or two years, so. Yeah. Um, then he ends up as, as mayor, governor. Um, as sheriff, though, he gets to do something that, that few presidents have done. I mean, some presidents in different circumstances, when they weren't president, have ordered executions. George Washington did when he was commander-in-chief in in the Revolutionary War. But Grover Cleveland actually got to execute people, right? Didn't he he take part in the execution when he he was there? He performed them. I I think Grover Cleveland would reject got as the verb there, got to do the execution, (laughs) because he he did not enjoy it. It's It's quite interesting. I mean, when you look at pictures of Grover Cleveland, when you look at the sort of steel jawed one that's on the cover of my book, and then when you collate that with everything we know about Grover Cleveland's personality, he's a little gruff. He's a little rough-hewn. He's, as I say, he's a man of few words. He has a bit of a temper. He can usually keep it under control, but there are these sort of volcanic eruptions. This is not a man that you would look at 
or even come to a superficial understanding of and think that there were deep reservoirs of empathy or compassion in him. But there are, and they sometimes show up in weird places. And one of them is in this role as sheriff. He is on two separate occasions called to conduct hangings, in both cases for murders. He's really torn up about this. Um, we know from the accounts that we have at the time he, he can't sleep. He's finding it hard to eat, which if you look at Grover Cleveland, like that's a pretty significant accomplishment for him to find difficulty eating. <laughs> you know, he's our second heaviest president. And he actually, he had an out, technically. Under the laws in Buffalo, <clears throat> he could have paid somebody to act in his stead. And he is unwilling to do that. I always wonder about the parallels you know, actually with the draft. This is a guy who was already once in his life right. as somebody to stand in his stead. And he will not do it as sheriff. He feels like this is the office that he has been elected to. This is a responsibility embedded in the office. And there's something, you know, uh, there's a shirking of duty that would be involved in passing this off to somebody else. So on two occasions he does this, but what's interesting is how he does it, which is, there's this macabre feature of 19th century life in America, which is the public executions are a kind of spectator sport. I mean, there is a there is an account, uh, which I mentioned in my book, of a hanging that had been conducted in Buffalo years prior. This is before Cleveland was even there, where the turnout for a public execution, for a hanging, was larger than the population of the city of Buffalo at the time really sort of grim to think about the way that people treated this. Cleveland would have none of this. So what Cleveland did both times that he conducted the executions, they built scaffolding around the site where the executions were to be conducted. And then they draped them in black cloth so that there was no possible angle, you know, if you were at a, a nearby uh, building or something like that, to be able to see it because he just, he just regarded it you know, rightfully, this certainly comports with the modern sensibility, right? He regarded it as 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 crass, as sort of a loathsome thing for the population to treat this as a, a form of entertainment. Mm -hmm. So he he does this on two occasions, but he does it with a very heavy heart. And it's somewhat ironic because this is used later on as part of the caricature of him as this sort of rough-hewn figure, that you know, the Buffalo hangman is the nickname that he gets saddled with. Which I, as I mentioned in the book, I think is a little dicey. I, anytime that you are caricaturing a political opponent on the basis of something that even coarse radiates a kind of strength that can sort of backfire on you, but yeah. it, it, was, it was doubly ironic, duty, right? Yeah, doubly ironic because Cleveland was a particularly faint-hearted executioner. He didn't take a lot of joy in this. Mm -hmm. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news 
right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan 
when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So you subtitled your book. Your book is A Man of Iron. You subtitled the book, The Turbulent Life and Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland. And there have been several improbable presidents, people who by you know, a series of circumstances got them to a place where suddenly they were, they were commander in chief. But Grover Cleveland's is remarkable. When you look back at it, though, you can see how he set himself up or how he was set up for when the moment arrived. And really that has to do with being mayor of Buffalo and governor of New York, both relatively briefly, but in both cases, a true fiscal conservative, uh, someone who was not beholden to party bosses, actually was elected in part for that very reason. Yeah. Um, someone who stuck to his principles, even when politically convenient, sometimes even when what could have been called politically suicidal. And yet it just happened at the right time each time, such that when it's finally time in 1883, 1884, suddenly you have national leaders looking at this otherwise obscure figure, a uh, very fresh governor of New York, saying he's exactly who we need right now because of inter-party dynamics. So talk about those dynamics a bit. What was it that happened in the early 1880s that had Grover Cleveland, this this man who's seen as a man of pure integrity and principle, who does things even against self-interest, how was that actually good in an era that is so characterized by the opposite? Yeah, it's very interesting. I've made the argument in certain fora that, and maybe this would be true of a lot of presidents, but I think it's especially true with Cleveland, that if you move him 10 years prior or 10 years later, none of this happens. It never gets off the ground. That his personality and what he brought to office was uniquely responsive to a moment in American politics. So let me unpack what that moment was about. As I said earlier, in the aftermath of Civil War Reconstruction, you've got a Republican regnancy. Republicans control almost all the, the levers of power at the federal level. And what accompanies that is I call it in the book the equivalent of political gout. Things were too good for too long. You know, you sort of see this today, particularly in state governments. If there's a real monoculture, if Democrats control everything in a state, if Republicans control everything in a state, policy tends to go sideways sometimes, but you also see a lot of corruption and self-dealing uh, breaking through. And that was the case in the federal government at that time, compounded by the fact that their sort of philosophical priors about this were very different than ours, right? Insofar as party patronage and party spoils, there was a huge contingent, particularly within the Republican Party, who didn't regard this as particularly uh, immoral or gauche or anything like that. They thought just thought, this is how you do politics. You know, this is how these systems run. But there's an, enough rot setting in that you start to get this reformist faction within the Republican Party. This is the famous split between the half-breeds and the stalwarts over you know, what the, the limit should be on, on party patronage and this kind of 
self-dealing. The reason that Cleveland hits this moment so well, first of all, the geography matters um, coming out of New York because New York is a swing state at this point in presidential politics. So having been the governor of New York is a, is a real leg up. But what Cleveland had consistently done in Buffalo, in New York State, and eventually in his pursuit of the presidency, this reputation for incorruptibility and the fact that he would regularly say things like a Democratic thief is no better than a Republican thief, right? right. He's not thinking right. about this in partisan terms, allows him to build a coalition of Democrats and sort of reform-minded Republicans because the way that he approaches office is such that they think this is a guy I can make the reach for without feeling like I'm abandoning all of my first principles. And it helps that when Cleveland is running for the presidency in, in 1884, he is running against James G. Blaine, the Republican nominee, who is himself a guy who has a long history of allegations of corruption crooked deals with railroads and things like that. So Cleveland just keeps managing to shoot the gap because he is such a he is such a tonic to what the dominant features of American politics are at that time. It's amazing. He had made so many enemies within the Democratic Party itself, uh, almost running against the party, uh, even though he was a Democrat that, you know, running for the presidential election, he he was just at that perfect over overlap of several circles, right? They needed New York. New York was the ultimate swing state then uh, with several others in and out over the, the subsequent and previous presidential elections. But New York was often the swing state. So having somebody who was a New Yorker was good. The, the GOP itself was fracturing over issues of corruption between the stalwarts yeah. uh, and the rest of the party. So having a reformist would be good to blunt that. And then... You know, Cleveland happened to be the guy who who hadn't held a federal office before. He had barely been governor very long. So he had not been forced to put his opinion forward on some yeah. of the most contentious issues of the day, which seem really esoteric and nerdy to us, but things about right. tariffs and gold yep. and silver and all of these things. But Cleveland had said little or nothing on those, which actually made him the perfect candidate for the party that in many ways didn't really want him. So what a great time to run for president right at that moment. Yeah, you know, it's funny. If you look at the chronology of offices held, this is certainly not the way that anybody would choreograph this, by which I mean, when he runs for sheriff in Buffalo, in Erie County, rather, um, he's sort of an afterthought. He is he is drafted onto that ticket. Nobody really wants the sheriff's job. He is drafted on that ticket to help down the ballot for another Democrat who's running for a House seat. When he is drafted to run for mayor of Buffalo, I mean, it, there's a reason, you know, as you suggested, there he has lots of enemies within the Democratic Party. There's a reason that 10 years elapse after he's sheriff and before he runs for mayor, and it's because he's actually not that popular within the Democratic Party in, in Buffalo because he wasn't indulging most of the usual graft that one would expect from a sheriff. He gets chosen to run for mayor, he gets asked, because everyone else who the Democrats wanted to run in Buffalo had turned them down. Nobody thought it was a particularly winnable election, and Grover comes in eighth or ninth down the list. And even becoming governor of New York, 
he does not go into that race as the front runner at all. He ends up becoming sort of a compromise choice amongst a couple of other factions within the party. So he is just kind of writing. It's like he's writing these little thermals, you know, all the way up. It is not a, it does not look for all intents and purposes, like a political juggernaut in the building. So he just, you know, he catches all these things just right, which is pretty remarkable. So in the campaign itself, um, obviously there are some policy issues that come up. It's a pretty ugly campaign in many ways, but one of the biggest issues that comes up is ironic given Grover Cleveland's overall reputation as a man of duty, a man of honor, a man of integrity and principle. And it has to do with the, the story that ran in Buffalo's newspaper, the Evening Telegraph in July. So a few months before the election talking about a woman who claimed that a bachelor, Grover Cleveland, was the father of her child and didn't really, he may have made some money payments for the child, but had no interest in raising the child or being a part of the, the child's life. Um, big issue in the campaign, but it didn't cost him the, the presidency. Why not? No, it didn't. It's, it's, so it's very interesting. Um, as you say, this happens This happens actually shortly after he secures the Democratic presidential nomination in 1884. And I appreciate you making the distinction that he, he was still a bachelor at this point, which I think some people miss. So the scandal here is not about uh, the breaking of any marital vows. It is really about the child sure. born out of wedlock and, and Cleveland's uh, seeming negligence. A couple of things happened that keep this from being quite as big of a bombshell as one would think. The first is the initial reports about this, some of which continue to haunt us to this day because um, certain writers have not done a very good job of parsing what was factual and what was politicized. Because I have to say, when you look at the press coverage in the late 19th century, if you think today sets a low bar for partisanship in journalism, boy, you should look back at this era. I mean, because there are so many on both sides, there are so many outright falsehoods that end up in reputable newspapers because they are, in many cases, just sort of electioneering vehicles. I mean, the partisanship comes first. So there are, are details that suggest that Cleveland had promised to marry this woman and had welched on that and that Cleveland had actually had the, the child abducted from her and that she had been thrown into an asylum. And all of these things are, are either false or sort of funhouse mirror distortions of things that actually happened that are... Um, considerably more prosaic. So that takes a little bit of the sting out of the story, which is just that it, it gets deflated as time passes. People realize that there's less to this than first appeared, although it still seems quite likely. I mean, we don't know to this day whether Cleveland actually fathered this child. The circumstantial evidence suggests to me that it is more likely than not. Mm -hmm. Cleveland's defenders at the time tried to make it sound as if this woman had had relationships with several men and that actually there's a, there's a version of this and where Cleveland is the hero because he is standing up and taking care of the child when actually the father might've been a married friend of his. I don't think there's any particularly good evidence for that. Yeah. I, I have this memory and I'm, I have not dug nearly as deep into Grover Cleveland as you have, but I am just on the presidential nerd scale enough that I've bought several of the old <laughs> yeah. biographies of him written, um, in some cases, a hundred years ago. Um, and I remember the, the Alan Nevins one, if memory serves that I got the impression after reading that, that, and maybe, maybe he cited evidence and maybe it was just his, um, his tone that 
Cleveland wasn't sure if this was his his own kid or not, and and made some claim to to that point. Am I I'm, am I remembering something? No, you're, you're remembering that entirely correctly. And the reason that I'm slightly more dubious on this point is because you have just repeated almost verbatim what Nevin says in the book. Nevin's claims in Cleveland's second term, I believe, that Cleveland wrote a letter in which he said he was never sure of the paternity of the child. A couple weird things about this. One is that unlike almost everything else in Nevin's book, there is no source given for this. There, there is no citation in the book as to where one can find this letter. I spoke with the Library of Congress in the process of writing the book. They don't know anything about this letter. They can't find it. So I'm not saying that this letter doesn't exist. It very well could. But one of the difficulties that Grover Cleveland and a lot of uh, presidents from more distant eras in American history pose is that their papers are scattered to the four corners of the earth, or in many cases destroyed, or in many cases in private collections where you wouldn't even know where they are. So maybe this letter is out there, and maybe it isn't. But I was very careful to limit my analysis of the situation to what I could actually sort of tangibly get my hands on. And I was never able to find this letter that Nevins is, is citing. Obviously, it would be an incredibly important piece of evidence. Right, right. Uh, the other factor I should mention, you asked why it didn't have as much of an impact as it seemed it should have. Cleveland sort of famously, when this scandal comes up, his guidance to his staff is, whatever you do, just tell the truth. He's not trying to dodge it. Now, what that means in that context is a little different than what we would think it would mean today. Insofar as Grover Cleveland doesn't come out and give this big confessional about everything that happens. He doesn't really talk about it. But as he says, his his feeling is that they can't be cringing about it, that they can't try to run from this, that he just has to kind of stand up and own it. Shortly thereafter, there is another scandal involving Blaine, his rival, which seems incredibly quotidian by modern standards. It just comes down to allegations that Blaine's first child was born less than nine months after his marriage. Ooh. Yeah. And, but Blaine, and this is very much in keeping with sort of Blaine's personality, Blaine tap dances around this whole thing. They claim at first that actually there was a secret marriage that nobody knew about. And by the way, there's no living witnesses, so don't ask anybody about it. And then the Blaine's associates start putting out various defenses of this story in the press, all of which contradict each other. So you end up in a place when all is said and done where both of these guys have kind of reverted to the mean, which is to say yeah, yeah. Cleveland has sort of a messy story about him, but comes out of it looking like a guy who will lead with his chin and just stand up and take the arrows when he has to. And Blaine yeah. has a much more modest set of allegations against him and is constantly sort of bobbing and weaving, won't even seem to own that. So you you sort of end up with a reset. They both end up back where the public sort of thought they were in the first place. Hmm. So Cleveland ends up as president, of course, and uh, he's in his uh, first term as president. Um, my summary of his first term as president is uh, three words, veto, veto, veto. He, <laughs> yeah. he has yeah. a habit of just shooting down just about everything, including things with the wide support, wide bipartisan support, uh, yeah. including majority support from his own party. But he has no compunction whatsoever, unlike some of the early presidents, for using the veto. Um, why is that important? And what does it tell you both about Cleveland 
carrying forward his principles into the presidency and leading up to, spoiler alert, his uh, inability to get reelected. Yeah. He vetoes 414 pieces of legislation in his first term, which is more than all 21 presidents prior to him combined. This tells you a few things. One, it is sort of reflective of his conception of executive power, his conception of the presidency. He takes the verb preside very seriously in presidency. So he, and this is true of his tenure as mayor of Buffalo and governor of New York as well, he often thinks of executive power in negative terms, in terms of the use of the veto, in terms of being kind of a night watchman who's keeping the legislative bodies that he's dealing with at bay. When you hear the number 414 vetoes, it inspires visions of this enormous sort of ideological battle, you know, of a president trying to suppress some big sweeping movement coming out of Congress. And when you actually look at what Cleveland was vetoing, it's not really what's going on. Uh, the majority of his vetoes, you mentioned, you know, issues that seem extremely distant to us in this day and age. Well, here's one for you. Pensions for Civil War veterans. This is what they're fighting over. Now, as with several issues that we, I deal with in the book, I try to, because this era of history is so foggy for modern Americans, I try to put this in a context to explain why it mm -hmm. mattered at the time. The reason mm -hmm. that it mattered at the time is roughly, I mean, the scale is obviously different, but in terms of proportion, this was roughly the equivalent of fighting over entitlement programs today. This was the second biggest item that the federal government spent money on behind interest on the debt. And Cleveland, sometimes the shorthand of this makes him just seem like this unfeeling skinflint that, I mean, what could you do that would be more green eye shades than cutting out um, pensions for military veterans? Well, there's, there's a bigger principle at work here, at least in Cleveland's mind, which is that Cleveland's objection to these pensions was not about compensating union veterans who had been injured in the course of service. It was about the fact that as the years had gone by, the requirements to receive these pensions had gotten much, much more elastic. And actually, these pensions that were coming to his desk, were they were specific congressional appropriations for individual veterans. And this was a kind of constituency building on behalf of the Republican Party. It sort of operated the way that, that earmarks did. I, you give a thing for my guy in my district, I give a thing for a guy in your district. And what really bothered Cleveland was that he thought the pensions were actually really meaningful when they were earned. That if you had stood up in a moment of maximum danger and served your country, put your life on the line and carried the scars of that for the rest of your life, then you deserved that money. But he was mortified by the idea that alongside those people on the rolls would be people who had just figured out how to game the system. And they really had. I mean, I, I give a couple of extreme examples of this in the book. A guy who presented an application for a pension having broken his leg while picking flowers, you know, things like that. And so this, um, it's interesting because the, the principle that he is advancing here, when you understand it in those terms, is quite admirable. But as you sort of suggested there, there's also a kind of a political myopia here, right? And that the, the gains here, apart from the gains on principle, are relatively modest and you can entirely understand, particularly because this is an era in which union veterans are an organized and effective constituency in American politics, 
why this is going to boomerang back on you when you're running for re-election uh, to the presidency, which is precisely what happens to him. It's one of the issues that comes back in 1888 when he's running for re-election. It is striking that given that 1884 is certainly not the most contentious election in American history, but but it's up there. It's in the top 10. Yes. Um, 1888 messy. was in the bottom 10. It was actually a relatively placid, um, gentlemanly campaign in many ways. I think that says something about Cleveland, that maybe Cleveland wasn't the one really pushing a lot of the 1884 um, shenanigans. Um, but it also spoke to some level of respect that he had for Benjamin Harrison, right? Yeah, that's entirely true, because you see this in the 1888 election and the 1892 election, which is even sleepier. Uh, remarkable, right? Because here you have a, a contest between a former president and the sitting president. You would think it would be electric. It's pretty quiet, actually. And the accounts that we have from the time suggest that the country didn't care that much. The accounts of the 1892 election remind me a bit of the accounts of the 2000 election. If you recall, before we got to the Florida recount and everything, the 2000 election was famously the election about nothing. Nobody right. really cared, right? Whether it was going to be Bush right. or Gore. That's what the accounts, Cleveland and Harrison, mm -hmm. suggest. Yeah, they liked each other. Um, they didn't know each other that well, but Cleveland had a respect for Harrison. Didn't agree with a lot of the policies, but there was um, there was some respect, if not if not affection there. And the other thing that you mentioned, which I think is a good point, it, it does suggest, I think, that Blaine was in the driver's seat in 1884 in terms of making that election ugly. And there's a good piece of evidence for that, which is that during the 1884 election, Cleveland is actually approached, the Cleveland campaign is approached at one point with some supposedly incriminating evidence about Blaine. And uh, the person who is offering it is trying to sell it and Cleveland buys it. And there's this very famous scene where he gets the evidence and then throws it on the account of his staff or throws it into uh, the fire, burns it Unread. up and says, let the other side have the monopoly on this kind of behavior in the campaign. If, if that is true, and there are a lot of accounts of it, I mean, it seems, this seems a little like an Aaron Sorkin scene. So you, you okay. kind of have to suspend truthiness. It. Yeah. But, um, I do think that that's indicative of the fact that like Cleveland is just not a born politician. You know, the yeah. things that get him through are not sort of politically stuff. And, and I, th mm -hmm. I think you are right that yeah. he did not savor the down in the dirt aspects mm -hmm. of politics. Right. So his, his reelection then, you know, coming back into office in, in 1893 after the, the 1892 election, um, it sounds to me from what you've already said, like, well, circumstances were quite different then in many ways in terms of the attitude towards the presidency. Turnout rates were yeah. not extraordinarily high. Um, Harrison was not extraordinarily popular. So Cleveland coming back in, it it wasn't that he was so extraordinary and it had been, the, the country realized that the decision four years earlier had been such a disaster that they had to turn back to their savior. It almost sounds yeah. like a shrug saying, well, why, why not? He's, he's probably, we know him enough to know he's probably better than the guy we've had, but it wasn't some kind of a, a groundswell. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the one thing that really helps Cleveland, this is a kind of serendipity that you see repeated throughout his career, where politically foolish stands on principle will sometimes come back around in his favor. In Cleveland throughout his career, <clears throat> but starting really in the middle of the first term, 
becomes really fixated on reducing tariff rates. Again, a thing that you, I remember as a kid being taught about the history of the Gilded Age. Everything's about tariffs. And you're like, why? Yeah, why on earth does anybody care? Boring. Yeah, and the, the answer to which is that this is in an era prior to the income taxes we know it. This is where the money was. This, this was arguing, the federal budget. Yeah, yeah, this would be arguing about income tax rates today. The money came from tariffs. And Cleveland's position was that they, they needed to be lower. It was not a free trade position. Nobody really held a free trade position at, at this point. Anyway, Cleveland goes all in on this for his first re-election campaign in 1888. And this is politically foolish insofar as it is the single issue around which his campaign is built. And it is also an issue that divides his own party and unites the opposition. Not the way that any rational person would construct a presidential campaign. It doesn't help him. But in the four years he's out of office, you have the McKinley tariff during the Harrison administration where tariff rates go way up and the public starts to feel the sting of it. So the thing that was politically foolish for him four years prior now makes him seem like he can see around corners a little bit because the public has decided that, you know what? Yeah, we are a little fed up with tariffs. And there's Grover Cleveland waiting to come back in. It's not the sole factor uh, that drives it, but it, it's one of the major ones. And it's probably worth noting too, that uh, Cleveland does not spend those four years out of office dying to come back in. And for the mm. first couple of years, actually, it's pretty clear that he's not that interested. He actually sort of likes being an ex-president. He thinks he did enough in his first term. And he's only really pulled back into it for two reasons, which we can get into later. But one is he's seeing the Harrison administration undoing a lot of what he had done. Right. And the other is he's seeing this drift in the Democratic Party that is actually mm -hmm. taking it away from sort of his principles. Right. And and not a lot of compelling Democratic candidates other than Grover Cleveland. So to me, there's yeah. there's a similarity. There's some key differences, but a, a similarity to Nixon, right? In, in 1960, now he had not lost the presidency, but in the close election in 1960, Nixon loses. And, you know, famously, you know, you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Um, he goes away. And then suddenly eight years later, it's this, this comeback and, and he wins the presidency. And I think a part of it is because there weren't that many, I mean, Reagan wasn't at his height by far yet. Right. Um, you didn't have that many compelling Republican candidates. So Nixon could come back in Grover Cleveland's case. It was only four years instead of eight, but it was kind of a similar situation where some of the things that people remembered about Eisenhower's presidency and thus Nixon's vice presidency looked a little bit better by the late 1960s with what was going on in the country to, to many people. And similarly, in just four years, some of the things that Cleveland did looked a little bit better and without a better Democrat to champion them in walks Grover Cleveland. Yeah, because the Democrat who was most likely to get the nomination if Cleveland had not run was actually his successor as governor of New York, a guy by the name of David B. Hill, who had been Cleveland's lieutenant governor and had taken over when Cleveland won the presidency. and they really intensely dislike each other. And Hill is sort of Cleveland's antithesis in that really couldn't care less about any of these reformist policy issues, is really a machine guy. And you can see in Cleveland's letters, once Hill really starts the machinery running to be setting up a presidential campaign, this is a big part of what galvanizes Grover Cleveland because there is, depending on how you view him, there... There is this streak in him. We could call it a good government streak if we're favorably inclined towards him. We can call it a self-righteous streak if we're negatively inclined. I think there's a little bit of truth to both. 
but the idea of handing over the keys to somebody who is his antithesis, having that person be the head of his party, having that person be his successor as a Democrat, yeah. he just can't tolerate it. Yeah, that's rough. So be, before we do some comparing and contrasting with someone else who's who's seeking to get back to the presidency now, mm-hmm. um, let's put a wrap on Grover Cleveland because yeah. you've pointed out kind of in the pantheon of presidents, we don't have... we. We don't have a lot of presidents like Cleveland who did a relatively good job in their terms, but didn't do anything great who are remembered in that top tier. Um, In some of the historian surveys, he's been in the top 10, but he's faded out of that over time as more presidents have, have come in. But I think it speaks to this big issue, which is to be somebody who's seen as one of those greatest presidents you have to do something bold or be a leader during a time of crisis. Woodrow Wilson, yeah. I think objectively, not a great president, but he's still ranking pretty high with the American public because right. you know, he was there during the First World War. Um, Grover Cleveland, in many ways, was a better president, but he was a better president because of what he didn't do, what he he chose not to do with the power of the presidency, how he chose to restrain things through the veto rather than expand federal power massively. Um, How do you see that whole mix coming in terms of how he is perceived today? You know, to the extent that this book has a purpose beyond just giving people an accessible account of Grover Cleveland's life, there is a, probably not even fair to call it a subtext, there is a secondary theme of this book, which is that the way that we think about the presidency and the people who occupy the office need some adjusting, need some updating. And the reason that I make that argument, uh, I do not contend in this book that Grover Cleveland belongs on Mount Rushmore. He does not. And I do not contend in this book that the conventional pantheon of first-tier presidents is wrong. George Washington belongs there. Abraham Lincoln belongs there. You know, you understand the prominence of a, of a Teddy Roosevelt or a Woodrow Wilson. I'm not arguing with any of that. What I am arguing, however, is that there's sort of a second tier that is absent, I think, in the way that most Americans think about the presidency, which is people who did the job in a distinctive and valuable way, even if the way that they did the job did not result in sort of one highly accessible accomplishment, one thing that we can all easily point to and say, Lincoln won the Civil War. You know, Washington established the presidency as as we know it. And, you know, there's pretty good research on this. Americans, when they are asked which presidents they remember, there's only three categories. There's the first few, the last few, and Lincoln. That's it. And so we have these huge lacunas in how we think about it. And this is part of the reason that I also wanted to tell the story of Cleveland's age and these issues, because the other thing that I think is a consistent problem is that there are big dead zones in American history that the, the, even the educated layperson doesn't understand particularly well, partially because I think Americans tell a lot of their historical stories through the vehicle of the presidency, right? The, the Civil War is easier to understand if you tell it through Lincoln. World War II is easier to understand if you tell it through FDR. And there are these two big windows in American history. One is the pre-Civil War expanse between Jackson and Lincoln, and the other is this post-Civil War expands from uh, 
really Andrew Johnson all the way up until you get to maybe McKinley, but definitely TR. Yeah. We don't know any of those presidents. So we really don't know any of those stories. This is the reason that nobody understands why anybody cared about tariffs or, or civil war pensions or the debate versus you know gold or silver in the monetary supply, which I get why they want to ignore that. I wrote this book and I wanted to ignore that too, right? It's strenuous. But my bigger argument here is that we just have to find the intellectual space to understand that there are presidents who make contributions, whether by dint of their personality or, as you say with Cleveland, you know, by dint of restraint. Restraint is actually a hard thing to build a monument to, right? Because there's, there's an absence of things to point to. But it's a really important quality in a president. He's very different than Grover Cleveland, but I would say that you know, when you get into the 20th century, another good example of this, and I think people are starting to recognize it, is Eisenhower. Eisenhower yes. is in many ways yeah. distinctive because of things he doesn't do because of right. how careful he is in the way that he approaches the presidency. Yeah, I and yet somebody we need to find more appreciation for that kind of president. Had he not become president, Eisenhower would have still been a famous American because of what he right. did do during the war, which makes it even more remarkable in a sense that his presidency was was one of restraint in many ways, not not all. Right. Uh, so let's let's do the big comparison, right? Let's we're, we're talking here so much about presidents who lose and run again. And, and Grover Cleveland is unique as the one who has lost, run again, and actually retaken the, the office. Um, let's compare him to the man who's trying now, which is Donald Trump. We've already pointed out George H.W. Bush realized his time was done. Uh, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, people, people in relatively recent times who have been in similar situations have realized their time is done. Uh, Donald Trump has not. So in terms yeah. of similarities, um, one is that they, they're they both political outsiders, right? Cleveland was a Democratic Party man, but he was not a man of the party spoils system. He actually ran against the party in some ways. So he was kind of a political outsider, especially coming up to the presidency. And, and Donald yeah. Trump was too. Um, but they're outsiders in very different ways in terms of who they're appealing to, aren't they? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, in that Cleveland, you know, this Republican faction that is sweet on Cleveland, which is referred to as the Mugwumps, this is very much kind of a elite sort of reformist movement uh, of the kind that one could not imagine Donald, Donald Trump appealing to at all. I mean, their relative positions in their political parties are actually kind of reversed. By which I mean Cleveland is the last of the Jeffersonian classical liberal limited government Democrats. And the fight that Cleveland is engaged in throughout his presidency, but especially in the second term, is against the William Jennings Bryan sort of populist faction of Democrats. Whereas with Trump, you've got a guy coming into a party that had traditionally been a more classical liberal party to a, to a degree. I mean, we can argue over how much but introducing this more populist sensibility into the bloodstream. So, you know, Trump, to the extent that he is a, a revolutionary, Cleveland is kind of a counter-revolutionary. They are really sort of sitting at opposite ends of the spectrum here in terms of their relationship to that party at that point in time. Yeah, it's interesting that there's there's that obvious break. And then there's also a divergence in, you know, what is the outsider running to do? Um, 
interrelated with the populism point, but I think distinct. So Cleveland is, you know, looking to avoid misuse of taxpayer funds. He's looking to preserve financial security. He's looking for integrity in office. Um, not necessarily things people would associate with Trump in his first term or his reelection bid. And I go back to the speech that I think was in 1892 that you cite that Cleveland gave. And I just imagine these words coming out of Cleveland's mouth. You, you hear this and you think, okay, now I get a sense that, that this is what the man lived uh, and practiced, but you don't hear it as much as much now. When he was giving a speech in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan, telling people obviously younger than him, interest yourselves in public affairs as a duty of citizenship, but do not surrender your faith to those who discredit and debase politics by scoffing at sentiment and principle, and whose political activity consists in attempts to gain popular support by running devices and shrewd manipulation. What a contrast. I can't imagine that speech um, coming out of former President Trump's mouth um, at all, much less with sincerity. And yet from Cleveland, he could say that by 1892 and people are like, yeah, that, that there's no guile there. That's what the man truly believes. Cleveland has a lifelong allergy to demagoguery. And you see this throughout his career that he, and by the way, what's interesting about this, this is not limited to politics. He actually, I don't really write about this in the book, but he has this longstanding allergy to demagoguery in the church being used for political purposes. This just gets under his skin, this idea of talented orators trying to manipulate the public. And that speech that you said in Ann Arbor and that passage, it's it's strange because this is a, a very sort of blue-collar, to use the modern terminology, a very sort of blue-collar working-class guy, brass tacks. Like you read everything that issues from his desk. He is not... Um, He's not a particularly philosophical individual, which is not to say that he's not bright, but everything is is black and white to him. However, there is this very romantic conception of what government is supposed to be and what politics is to represent. So this idea of the importance of sentiment, that there is actually some moral color sort of embedded all the way back to the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. It is inseparable from how American politics is supposed to operate. And there's a lovely line from him, which I quote towards the end of my book. This is in his retirement, where he's having a conversation with a friend of his about a politician who goes unnamed, but a politician who is in the modern argot, what we call a hack politician. And Cleveland says to his friend, you know, the problem with that sort of fellow is that he doesn't think there's any political power in a moral idea. And this is sort of central to how Cleveland thinks about politics and Cleveland thinks about his role in politics. The policy stuff is actually secondary. The policy stuff is important insofar as it flows downhill from some first principle, which in his case is it's allegiance to the Constitution or fiscal conservatism or whatever. Right. Right. But he's never coming untethered from those first principles. Hurts him sometimes politically, but it's really yeah. central to understanding him. Yeah. Well, to, to close on this issue of comparison, um, we, we all remember, because it happened so recently, um, what happened when the most recent former president lost an election, uh, denying the election results, um, inspiring, if not inciting, the, the crowd on January 6th. Um, the contrast with Grover Cleveland is fascinating. Uh, after he was defeated in 1888, there were some people who were out there calling for some kind of 
action because there must have been fraud. Um, but what was the great line that Grover Cleveland came up with to explain why he thought he had lost? So this is remarkable. 1888, by the way, if Cleveland wanted to be Trump in this set of circumstances, he had a better claim. Cleveland wins the popular vote in that election, or he loses the Electoral College. Right. And there is legitimate electoral tomfoolery going around. Now, most of it is caught well ahead of time, and it's very unlikely that it actually did affect the outcome of that election. But as you say, that does not stop Democratic partisans from saying, well, clearly this was stolen from Grover Cleveland. And Cleveland is asked by the press, well, what do you think happened? And his response is, I think the other side got the most votes. <laughs> He's just thoroughly unwilling to entertain this. Yeah. That also sounds like it could be a Calvin Coolidge quote. The two yes, do have some. You see the similarities there. Similarities yeah. there. Well, Troy, what we do at the end of chatter is we reach into our uh, chatter box here and ask a random question from the pre printed ones we have. So tell me, what book or books are on your nightstand or on your Kindle, as it may be? Uh, books you're reading or books you have coming up? What an interesting question. Uh, it's probably not the mix that you would expect for a Grover Cleveland biographer. That's what makes it fun. I do have I do have a presidential biography, which I'm just about to start, that was written, um, and I feel terrible because I don't remember the author's name off the top of my head. Maybe you will. This book came out while I was writing the Cleveland book mm -hmm. on uh, James Monroe. Yes, um, I have it too and haven't begun it yet because my stack is too large. But yeah, and, we'll, and, we'll put it in the show notes with the author mentioned. And the reason that I um, have that book is because when people ask me about writing this one, mm -hmm. part of my argument was, you know, there are only 14 presidents in American history who've done a full eight years, and most of them are the household names, are the ones we know. And I would tell them, you know, the one big exception to that is Grover Cleveland and maybe Monroe. Yeah. I mean, you know the Monroe Doctrine, and Monroe, I think, has a good argument as one of America's most underrated presidents. So that's yeah. the reason I have that book and I'm excited to read it. The other one okay. that's on my nightstand has nothing to do with this whatsoever. It's a wonderful book that just came out that I actually just wrote a review of. It's about to be published called Number Ones. It's a history of the Billboard Top 100 charts, a history of pop music through 20 what a great idea for a book. Billboard hits. Yeah, it's fantastic. The guy who wrote it, his name is Tom, I don't know if it's pronounced Brian or Brian, uh, he's an editor at Stereogum, which is a music site. And he's been yep. doing this. This is an anthology. He's been doing this as a column oh. for the past four or five years. He is writing a piece about every song that's ever gone to number one wow. on the Billboard charts. And the thing I love about it so much, to give away a little bit of my review, because mm -hmm. it's a terrific book, is uh, I'm, a, I'm a big music fan. I was actually going to go into music long before I ever went into politics and history. Um, and there is a there is an elitism to pop music criticism that drives me a little crazy in that you mm -hmm. can look at every sort of top 50 albums of the year list and you will never have heard of 42 of the acts. You know, there'll yep. be folk metal trios from Belarus. And um, <laughs> none of that is brought to this book. I mean, this, this guy really sort of appreciates pop music as pop music, takes it seriously, but not too seriously. And uh, so there's this kind of demotic quality to what he's doing there, which I really enjoy. And it's just, it's packed full of terrific trivia and exceptionally well-written. So I recommend that to anybody who's interested in pop well, music. Well, we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. And it does make me think about the, um, you know, the the MCU alternate timeline of Troy Senek, where <laughs> as a 16-year-old, instead of telling your mom to go 
to New Jersey to see Grover Cleveland's birthplace, she takes you to CBGB's right in New York. (laughs) (laughs) And instead, we're having a conversation about how you're incorporating little elements of presidential history into your punk rock career. Right. (laughs) Troy, this has been great. Thanks for spending time with us and sharing the stories about Grover Cleveland specifically, but helping us shed light on, you know, presidents who lose and, and try to gain the office again. It's been great. Thank you, David. Really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Chatter.